0: Welcome back to The Junks. We're presented by Crop Metcalf, the official heating and cooling company of the junkies. Later in the hour, you'll have a chance to win tickets to see Luke Bryan. So keep listening for that. We'll do that at 945. But right now, we're joined on the BetQL guest hotline by Jeff Miller. He was a crime scene detective and forensic analyst with expertise, expertise in death investigations, criminal profiling, and hostage negotiation. For 27 years, he was a police officer and detective with the Fairfax County Police Department. His new book is A Life of Death, The True Story of a Crime Scene Detective, and he joins us this morning. You never know who's going to be listening to the junks, because Jeff and Good Morning is a longtime junks P1. I believe he's been listening for 20-plus years. I feel years, like we're kind of like
2: bright. huge with cops. Huge. May- maybe.
3: Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Well, I've been listening to you guys since... Uh, Oh, man, for 20 years, I mm-hmm. uh, used to drive past your studio every morning when I was on my way to headquarters. Right. So, uh, you know, I've been listening to you guys for a long time. As an aside, my dad, way back in the 60s, he had a morning drive show in Fort Collins in Grand Junction, Colorado.
0: Oh, very good. Wow. Radio runs in your family. So, how, when yeah, it sort of.
2: So this book is largely about a lot of your crime scene investigations and everything, right? And solving yeah. a lot of these crimes. Um, how long did it take you like from when you like graduated from police academy or whatever to get into detective work or is that something you did right away? But what was the process?
3: Yeah. When I was in the uh, police academy or, and even before then I was kind of a science nerd. Uh-huh. And so when I was in the police academy during the course of, you know, that training period, you get a lot of, uh, forensic science related classes. And because I was into science, I started to realize you know, if this is the career path I want to take, I'm really interested in this. I might want to really do this. And so I worked patrol for eight years, and during that time, you know, you work burglaries and car accidents, and you work in uh, radar and all that sort of stuff. But I was starting radar, to hone ugh. my I was starting <laughs> to hone my my forensic skills. I got really good with the camera. I started learning about how to process a scene and collect fingerprints. And so there comes there came a time that there was an opening in the ID section. Now Fairfax is back then, it was a really big police department, really big police department. And we had five officers whose job was to be crime scene detectives. And there was an opening in that, that section. I applied for it and I got accepted and I wasn't in the office 20 minutes. And I realized I did not want to do anything else for the rest of my career. This was... The absolute greatest job in all of police work, and I just loved every minute of it. Jeff, and I learned.
0: I'm sorry that, to interrupt. Is there like a weeding out process though when it comes to working crime scenes and forensics, where some cops are just they don't want to deal with like the the, the grisly details of being at a crime scene and the, and the blood and the gore? Is that something that ever affected you, or like you said, you just kind of took to it pretty naturally?
3: Yes, yeah, sure. There's there's some cops who don't want to do that kind of stuff because it is grisly. It smells God awful. You see terrible things. And some people just don't want to get involved in that kind of stuff. I saw that. And I just thought it was incredibly fascinating because on occasion you would have a case where you have a dead person and there's nobody to talk to. There's no witnesses. There's no next of kin there. There's, there's no one for the homicide detective to speak to. And so, you know, when you walk into the room and that's the case, people all turn and look at the crime scene detective and go, all right, buddy, you know, it's all yours. Mm. Solve this case. And when that happened, especially if it was a murder, I just loved that. It was like it was like being in the spotlight. It was like being a, a, in a Super Bowl because you know, the whole case was going to rely on you. You're going to have to decipher and collect and properly analyze all this forensic information. And then present it to the prosecutor, the prosecutor would then put his case on in court and then you would have to testify to it in court and then you would have to convince 12 jurors that, hey, all of this information that I collected at the scene indicates that the defendant was responsible for this murder. And that was, that was the absolute best part of the job. It was just so rewarding and so much fun
0: talking to jeffrey miller he's got a book out called a life of death the true story of a crime scene detective he's definitely fascinated by death because just four of the chapter titles have death in it but i wanted to talk to you about one case because we all kind of fancy ourselves as people that would love to be detectives and 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 figure something out so so take us through one of your crime scenes i know you wrote a chapter about the church lady so fill us in kind of start to finish you you hear about um, a van, I believe it was, that's in a parking lot of a church, and kind of take us through it and how you solve that riddle.
3: All right. Um, police got a call. Uh, a Washington Post back. This is back in the day when the Washington Post got delivered at four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, Washington Post delivery man is driving through a neighborhood down by Fort Belvoir, and it's a snowy night. It had snowed the previous day, and all of this snow and ice was frozen in the parking lot in a church, as he approaches uh, intersection, the lights on his car illuminate a body lying in a parking lot. He drives over to it, gets out of the van, goes over and looks at the victim, realizes you know, she didn't slip and fall she's not unconscious. Something really god awful bad has happened. So this is back in the days before people had cell phones. He jumps out of the van, he runs across the street, he starts knocking on doors. And again, you know, it's really early in the morning, and so it finally get somebody to come to the door. They call the police. Patrol officers arrive. <clears throat> they see the body, and so they call homicide and crime scene. In the meantime, other patrol officers are doing a perimeter search around this church. And about a quarter of a mile away, off into the woods, they see a car has run into a tree. Um, they don't approach the car, but they can see that driver's side window is either rolled down or broken, and that nobody is around the car, and they don't see any footprints coming out of the car into the snow. They find another car about a quarter of a mile away. That car is in a ditch, kind of turned sideways, and inside on the driver's seat, they can see an empty holster, but the car is all locked up. So myself and a homicide detective, we get there at the scene, and my partner, Andy Johnson, he and I are the crime scene detectives, and and we're responsible for collecting all the evidence. In the meantime, patrol officers are running the tags of the car that's in the trees and the car that's found in the ditch.
2: So you got
0: a car in
3: the trees,
2: a car in the ditch, and you got a dead body.
3: Correct. Um, The victim has obviously been shot a number of times. She's uh, got a a number of um, bullet entry and exit holes, and she has an obvious wound, a bullet wound, to her face. Um, We process the scene and find two cartridge casings uh, there not too far from the victim. Uh, Then we go on and we move to the car that's in the woods. We look inside there. And we find a number of other cartridge casings, a broken window. And on the passenger side of that car, there is a pool of water about knee deep. And the ice had formed over top of this pool. And there was a a break in the ice where it looked like somebody had come out of the passenger side of the car, stepped on the ice. Their foot had punctured a hole into the ice. And then they stepped on the ice and walked away. And there was a fine powdery residue of snow on top of the ice. And you could see very clearly two boot impressions. About this time, we heard that the homicide detective was at the um, nearby police station interviewing the owner of the car that had the Mm -hmm. um, holster in it. Mm -hmm. And so we're going, okay, well, that, that must be somebody who had something to do with this. So we went to the station, and I told the homicide detective, hey, look, we need to collect this guy's clothing his jacket and take a look at his boots and see if they match the boot impressions we saw at the scene. And sure enough, they did. Same kind of uh, boot pattern. We collected his jacket, his uh, black leather jacket, and um, then we went back to the scene, collected the car. There were some more cartridge casings in the car. That car turned out to belong to the dead victim. And then we went back to The uh, suspect's car with the holster in it and inside that car in addition to the holster we found another cartridge casing but it was a different manufacturer than the cartridge casings we found in the victim's car and the cartridge casings we found at the scene where the, the victim was lying in the parking lot over time we were able to put all of this together and show that this particular suspect his name was gary asa donahue He was responsible for this murder, and this is a case where there were no witnesses to the shooting. Donahue never gave the homicide detective anything that was incriminating, and it was all solved by forensic science. And during the course of the the, um, trial, um, I had to testify about all of this forensic evidence, and it all came together very, very well.
2: Jeff, let, let me ask you a question. I always talk about this sort of hypothetical, and I'm always amazed that people think they can get away with crimes. Um, I used to say, if you wanted to commit a murder, now just this is kind of dark, but just work with me. You'd have to oh, kill. This a, book's dark. You got You got to kill a stranger. <laughs> you can't have a connection to it. Um, I don't know how you'd get rid of the body. I don't know. Light it on fire. I don't know what you'd do. But today, with cameras and everything, everywhere, ubiquitous. Can you, yeah. can you actually, if, if it's properly investigated, can you actually commit, like, the perfect murder today in 2024? Well, there, aren't no, there unsolved murders all the time? I know, but maybe they're not properly investigated, you know what I mean, with full well, resources.
3: Yes, there, there's there's always the unsolved murder. However, what you need to understand is the police never forget. They're always, we have cold case uh, mm-hmm. investigators who take these cases that have been unsolved for years, and they're always rattling the bushes, always trying to find something to, to to bring this to to a conclusion. And forensic science is always changing. Back in the day when I first started in the crime scene section, there was no such thing as DNA analysis. Right. But now they can do DNA on a single cell. Yeah. And so you know, technology has has increased a lot. The other thing you need to realize is. This device I'm talking to you with right now, the cell phone, yeah. the cell phone and the computer is the greatest boon to forensic science and law enforcement investigation since the, the, the discovery that fingerprints were unique to all human beings. Because the things that people do on their phone, the messages that they send back and forth it busts on their you computer, every time, right? it, 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 it gives an indication, like a time capsule, of what people do when they do it and and so for law enforcement it's a great way to look back in time and see what people have been doing. You need to get that burner phone, EB. So can get you so
2: can you can, can, if I wanted to just to I was a devilish kind of guy and I just wanted to taunt the police, you know, like these old serial killers would. I mean, can you really get away with that today?
3: Well, you can get away with the taunting, but we're going to track you down, and we're probably going to find you at some point. Right? You know, you have. You know, we're going to talk to people that know you. We're going to talk to people who used to know you. We're going to be able to find out things that you searched on the internet to try and figure things out. Um, all that stuff gets recorded, and over time, you know, uh, good investigators will be able to, to put it all together. Even if Just you're that- using incognito. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm
2: sorry. Even if you're using Google Incognito, See, he, doesn't know, maybe
3: he doesn't know about it. Now well, you'd be surprised at what somebody can find out. Um, they, the, the guys who invented Incognito, they know how to uninvent it. Right. They know how to to bust post it stuff open. There. Right.
1: Jeff. So that being said, um, you have a whole uh, chapter about the DC sniper case, which you were involved with. Uh, right. Just over twenty years ago, uh, and obviously, but that was like a time of our career. Terrified the the city. I
2: remember driving by the Home Depot. You were probably yep. right there investigating, yeah. right?
1: So if yeah. so, Jeff, if if street cameras were more prevalent then, and I yeah. don't even know if they were, but I assume they weren't. Would would that case have been solved a lot sooner? I assume it would have been.
3: Well, I mean, only <clears throat> if the street camera picked up the actual shooter right and then you could follow him and get, as he gets into his car and then see the license plate on the car yeah that that would have worked but going back after malvo and muhammad were identified and arrested mm-hmm. we then went to all the stores around those mm-hmm. particular areas even not just in the washington metropolitan area but in all the other cases across the country that they were involved in and we could pull video from all mm-hmm. kinds of different places. And sure enough, we found them doing stuff. You know, they, in their car, they didn't throw away a lot of stuff. And so they had a lot of receipts from purchases that they had made. And on the receipt, you stamped the name and address of a store, the time that they were there. We would go to the store, pull the video. And sure enough, you could see them in there walking around. Right. You could see them shoplifting stuff or, or paying. So for how stuff. long
2: did you know it was them before you caught them?
3: Uh, only 24 hours. Okay. Um, that was a, a situation that occurred in that law enforcement, uh, a, a number of things all occurred on the very same day. Um, Malvo's fingerprint got identified in reference to a shooting in Montgomery, Alabama. And that information led to the fact that Malvo and his mother had been arrested in Tacoma, Washington, because they were illegal immigrants. Mm. FBI contacted the authorities there, and they told them a story about Malvo um, being with Mohammed. FBI then ran Mohammed's name to see if he had a vehicle. They had recently purchased the Chevy Caprice, and they had registered it in, in New Jersey. And so it had a tag number. And so there came a time when the task force had all of that information, and they were didn't want to release it to the press immediately because then – You know, the bad guys would hear that because they were monitoring TV and radio and reading the newspapers. If they released that, then, you know, Malvo and Muhammad would have just got and stolen another license plate, put it on their car, and we had been back to zero. Mm -hmm. So they hung on to that information for 24 hours, and then they decided to release it, and we got lucky in that um, they were asleep in Mm -hmm. a uh, rest rest area and and was noticed by a truck driver. He called the police, and the whole cavalry came in there and got him pretty
1: quickly. Was that Myersville, Maryland? It was outside
0: that... of Frederick, I think. Outside somewhere. of Frederick, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Exactly, Myersville, Maryland. Myersville,
1: yep. Maryland. Yep. All
3: right, Jeff, well,
0: thanks so much for the time, and thanks for sending us copies of the book. It's A Life of Death, the True Story of a Crime Scene Detective. A lot of
2: stories in there.
0: Yeah, a lot of great local stories, uh, including the sniper, the, the shooting at the CIA that he was a part of, and much, much more. You can go to Amazon.com and wherever books are sold. Thanks again, and thanks for listening for 20 years. We appreciate that.
3: Hey, thank you very much for putting me on, guys. I really appreciate this. Thanks again.
1: All right. Nice talk to you, Jeff.
0: Again, the book is A Life of Death, The True Story of a Crime Scene Detective. You can get that at Amazon.com. When we come back, we'll get into EB's entertainment page next.